This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, a podcast where we take a look at the interconnectedness of our medieval past, the stories it holds, and how these stories directly shape the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jonathan. I want to take this opportunity to recommend a podcast that I've recently become a big fan of. It's called Forgotten Wars, and it's about, well, those wars and conflicts that people no longer study or even mention in the course of history conversations. He's doing some great things over there, and I hope you head over there to check it out. Again, it's called the Forgotten Wars Podcast, and make sure you tell them who sent you in your review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, this is our ninth episode of our third season of the podcast, a season focusing predominantly on the chaos that erupted following the death of Canute the Great. Today's episode, episode 43, is entitled Godwin Part 2. I hope you enjoy the show. shall we? At the end of the last episode, I chose to condense the return of Godwin for the sake of the episode's length, but it wasn't even close to being that simple of a process. Yes, King Edward set a potential civil war up outside Gloucester after Earl Godwin refused to punish the people of Dover over the killings of Count Eustace of Boulogne's men. And yes, Godwin appealed for peace time and time again, even offering up his own son, Wolfnoth Godwinson, and his grandson, Hakon Swainson, only to have his peace thrown back in his face. And yes, Godwin fled England to Flanders with his wife and two sons, while Harold and Leofwina Godwinson both fled to Dublin to gather support, all after Bishop Stiggen delivered the news that the only way for Godwin to get back in his king's good graces was if Godwin produced the king's younger brother, Alfred. You know, the one Godwin viciously murdered almost 15 years earlier. All of that happened, yes. Everything after that, well, let's start with what happened in England right after the vacuous sucking sound that was the vacancy left by Godwin and his family's abrupt departure. Earl Leofric's son, Elfgar, was made the Earl of East Anglia, Harold Godwin's old earldom. Earl Seward added some land to his Northumbrian earldom for his support. Edward gave his distant kinsman, Ada of Deerhurst, who was a nobleman of distinguished merit, mind you, who already owned considerable land around Worcester, Devon, Gloucester. Well, Ada was now the Earl of the lands connecting Warwickshire, Somerset, Cornwall, and Devon, which was most, mostly in Godwin's Wessex and Swain Godwinson's Midlands in the West. Swain Godwinson was again fleeced as Edward awarded his nephew, Earl Ralph, an earldom comprising of Swain's old stomping grounds of Herefordshire and nearby shires in the East Midlands. Edward even bestowed loyal Frenchmen fighting for Earl Ralph manors in the area too. Next, in London, with Robert of Jumiege currently donning that sweet hat in Canterbury, Edward relieved almost that Bishop Sparehavoc vacated the city of his own volition, he installed another Norman, another William, <laughs> as Bishop of London, creating a strong bond between church and state there in 1051. And then, of course, there was the issue of Queen Edith's swan neck. Yes, Edward booted her to the care of the abbess and nuns of Wilton, 
but it's not just as a means of, you know, sticking it to the Godwins. There's a lot behind that. Archbishop Robert of Canterbury certainly had been whispering in the king's ear about this one, namely the fact that Queen Edith had yet, in over six years of marriage, to give Edward a child. Now, we don't know if there were miscarriages, which certainly happened to couples indiscriminately since the beginning of time. But unfortunately, any and all blame for a marriage not producing a child was squarely put on the woman in the 11th century. Queen Edith, knowing that it could very well have been a very painful subject, was expected to shoulder the burden of her childless marriage alone. And here's something very interesting about this move by Edward to banish her to a nunnery. It could have been because he had, he had at last broken the chains that bound him to the Godwins, and she was just the last one. Edith could have represented that last sliver of hope that a Godwin would ascend to the throne of England, and Edward wanted to spitefully deny Godwin of the pleasure of it. There is that possibility. But I don't quite buy that. I'm more in the camp of Edward wanted an heir, and something was amiss in the marriage, and he wanted to try again. I mean, the guy was nearing 50 years old. Enough was enough. And that statement is assuming it was Queen Edith who was infertile. But it could have very well have been Edward himself who was infertile. It could have been both of them. We will simply never know, but I am 100% confident that church scribes got it all wrong when they said it was because Edward wished to remain as pure as the driven snow. That is a load of you-know-what, if you ask me. When he was crowned, when he got married, these are all documented instances when Edward was wished a fruitful reign and marriage. So, no. Sorry, church. Edward was many things, but chaste most likely wasn't one of them. So back to Edith and his lack of children. Regardless of who was unable to conceive, at that point, really, who cares, Edward was already an old man, and the kingdom needed assurances that he would provide continuity when it was his turn to shake loose his mortal coil. So it's said that Archbishop Robert devised a plan involving a kinsman and ally who just so happened to have a single daughter. A kinsman who was once married to Edward's sister, Goda. That's right. In walks the most majestic Kurt Russell as Wyatt Earp stash. And you know, just on a weekend vacay for no reason in particular. The events certainly match up, even if we have no evidence to prove that was why he was in town. Get Godwin out of the way, and Archbishop Robert can officiate the royal divorce, freeing Edward up to not only marry a younger bride, but also to reinstill his bond with the county of Boulogne. You have to admit, it's pretty likely. So Queen Edith was, in fact, cast aside just like that. Now, since the old Earl was gone, Chronicle D states that this was when Duke William crossed the channel and visited Emma and then Edward. However, this is the only place it's ever mentioned. Isn't it curious that this is the source that proponents of the quote-unquote Edward willed the kingdom to William camp uses to say that Edward was, well, officially willing his kingdom to William? I mean, not a single Norman source has been uncovered that says William took a trip to England in 1051 or 52 that's just it, not one. I'm not one to believe Edward indeed named William his heir. And this is one reason why. 
Besides, as we'll see down the road here, William was dealing with quite a bit in his duchy in the early 1050s. When would he have had the time and resources and the surplus of each to risk leaving his duchy to visit another kingdom? It just doesn't make sense. Besides, it's no secret that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles had been uh, 1984'd from time to time, and many historians tend to think this was one of them. And in addition to all that, Edward relieved his Earl's levies to head back home since Godwin was gone, leaving Earls Leofric and Seward to head back home into a bit of chaos on their own borders. Leofric noticed the Welsh king, Griffith ap Llewellyn, continued to consolidate his kingdom, and inching ever closer to the lands the Welsh claimed as their, as their own that now resided inside Mercia. And Seward, siding with Malcolm Canmore, or Malcolm Bighead, against the Scottish king, Macbeth. So now let's follow the Godwin's journey out of England and back. So the differences at this point between Godwin and Edward were quite simply irreconcilable. They were not two parallel lines working for the betterment of the kingdom, and Godwin would soon be a perpendicular thorn into Edward's side, one that would be impossible to ignore. And it's not just those of us with hindsight to safeguard our assumptions about this relationship either. It's not like one can say we came to this conclusion about Edward and Godwin's relationship with the luxury of time to protect us from the evidence. 11th century monks were well aware of it too. They, they tell us as much. In fact, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, D-Chronicle again to be exact, from the time wrote the following. It would have seemed remarkable in England if anybody had told them that it could happen, because he, that is Godwin, had been exalted so high, even to the point of ruling the king and all of England. And his sons were earls and the king's favorites, and his daughter was married to the king. End quote. Did you catch that interesting phrasing in the middle of that passage? Even to the point of ruling the king and all of England. That, to me, might be the most interesting of passages in the entire 11th century book of entries for these chronicles. An outright admission, publicly witnessed and accepted as truth, that a king can be brought low by his own nobility. And Edward wasn't exactly a, a King John here, either. Edward was, by many accounts and analyses, a fairly effective ruler, a decent bridge between the chaos post-Canute and violence and social upheaval beginning in 1066. And except for the hiccups with Godwin during this time, these, these late 1040s and early 1050s, it was 20 years of consistency and stability in England not seen since Canute himself. But happen it did. Godwin was down, but he wasn't out. I mean, you don't get your name along with a part two on an episode title in a podcast series if you didn't know how to handle yourself in a dire predicament. First, he, set, he sent his two sons, Harold and Leofwina, to Dublin seeking support. Now, when they arrived, they saw Dublin not too terribly different than where we on the podcast last left it. It was still that hive of scum and villainy a major trading port complete with active and lucrative slave markets and largely ruled by locally Norse Vikings, or ruled locally by Norse Vikings. However, it was no longer ruled overall by a Norse chieftain as it was 
during the days of Brian Beru. Now, it was ruled by Diarmit MacMail Nambo, the very powerful and influential King of Leinster. Having watched his father masterfully play this Game of Thrones for decades, Harold probably saw this as his opportunity to, to prove himself a diplomat and a leader within the family. And by all accounts, this trip was wildly successful. Ian Walker says in his book, Harold, the Last Anglo-Saxon King, quote, It was probably during this Irish sojourn that Harold had an opportunity to review the events of autumn 1051 that had led to the expulsion of his family from England and to learn important lessons that would benefit him in the future. He had seen that it was foolish for an earl, no matter how powerful, to directly challenge the king, that it was important to ensure the loyalty of one's own followers, that the English nobility had a strong aversion to the risk of civil war, and that it was vital to consider the reactions of the other earls to any action. End quote. Walker continues in that same paragraph of the book with what might be Harold's foremost lesson he learned, one that he would take with him over the next 14 years. Quote, he realized that the ability to negotiate and compromise were essential skills for any great man. End quote. While Harold was negotiating with King Diarmit of Leinster, his father was wintering in Bruges. What a wild turn of events Godwin must have thought just one year before, and he was still sitting at the pinnacle of English nobility. He was, as the D Chronicle put it, quote-unquote, again, the ruler of the king and all of England. And now, he was a political refugee given safe harbor by an ally and now kinsman through his son Tostig's very recent marriage to Count Baldwin V's sister, Judith, which just so happened to be in October of 1051. Again, very recent. During the late winter and early spring of 1052, Edward kept receiving letters from foreign dignitaries and nobility and royalty. Godwin was waging a war of popularity here, and Edward, if anything, was seeing Godwin's connections on full display, which must have been suffocatingly intimidating. The Vita Edwardi mentions that during this time, quote, the malice of evil men had shut up the merciful ears of the king, end quote. Yeah, Edward repeatedly rejected any offers of peace and readmittance of Godwin and his family from folks like Count Baldwin V of Flanders and King Henry I of France. Godwin was fielding his heavy hitters to no avail, so on June 23, 1052, Godwin set off with a small fleet of pirates he'd hired to check out the social climate in his old earldom. Landing off the southeastern coast near Dungeness, he encountered a welcoming committee. Banners, ribbons, food and drink, they rolled out the red carpet for this guy. Okay, not exactly, but Godwin was definitely not scared off like Edward had been a lifetime earlier. In fact, the people were quite friendly still most likely appreciative of their former Earl's treatment of the people of Dover. However, Edward anticipated something like this, so he had set up Earls Ralph and Ada in charge of a fleet to patrol the coastlines. You know, just in case. These were men who were drawn from the very almost civil war the previous autumn. They were battle-ready and weren't even about to show mercy to these pirates. What's that? 
basically just let Godwin's forces sail away? Well, they could have followed him, but bad weather in the channel hindered their immediate departure. So, so what did they do then? Edward just recalled him back to London? Well, good effort, boys, I guess. Seems kind of pointless, but Godwin and Edward both learned two pretty valuable lessons here. Godwin still held quite a bit of loyalty in the South, and Edward learned that Ralph and Otto weren't all that helpful in a crisis. In fact, when Edward's fleet of more than 30 ships arrived back in London, the men became so bored and fed up by their commander's indecision that they just left. <laughs> Literally walked away. Shortly thereafter, after Godwin made it back to Bruges and rallied a bigger force, he set off again, this time for the Isle of Wight, which was technically in his old earldom of Wessex. But he ravaged it. Like, like he wreaked havoc on it. His mercenaries were pirates, after all. They took everything that wasn't nailed to the floor, including the people. Granted, some of them most likely joined their earl's forces, given his lingering popularity in the area. But overall, Godwin laid the smackdown on the Isle of Wight. And while he was doing so, Harold and Leofwina commanded a fleet of Viking warships, no doubt promised riches if they joined the rebellion. They landed in Ada's Somerset to Godwin's west and torched the place from Minehead to Porlock. Harold was in charge and he commanded the fleet with decisiveness and precision only second to his father. On this particular campaign, Harold's men killed quite a few men, including more than 30 thanes. This was devastating to the local aristocracy, and it was meant to send a very pointed message to the rest of England, who opposed Godwin. And to top it all off, to top all of Edward's problems off, King Griffith ap Llewellyn decided to push into Otta's Midlands, attacking as far as Leominster. Now, years earlier, when Swain G.D. Godwinson was in charge, he had built a little wooden and stone fortress from which to harass his peasantry and shake them down when needed, because, well, he was an ass. This was near Hereford. King Griffith, he pretty much destroyed the fortress, as well as the town of Hereford's defenses, uh, stole what he wanted to, and enslaved a large majority of the Shire's population. So... Yeah, King Edward not only had his disgruntled ex-employee charging his defenses on the south, but he had his kid laying waste to, the, to his southwestern coastal towns and some butthead neighbor joining in because why not? Just when King Edward was at the top of his game, things just kept collapsing around him. I mean, the Chronicles themselves declared, quote, they all declared they would, they would live and die with him, end quote. That is, they would live and die with Godwin. The only real resistance Godwin saw was at Sandwich, when they met him in force, but he chose to back away without any bloodshed. Sandwich was in Wessex, and his point had clearly already been made. He headed to Dover, the place he was willing to be exiled for in the first place, but he was met with a sortie, and he chose again not to engage. At some point, Godwin had to have heard of his son's endeavors out near Somerset, so he avoided Dover again and headed out west to meet up. Along the way, though, Godwin decided to play a game with the hearts and minds of his former people. He played nice and won many, 
many of the towns over to his cause. He took what he needed, but mostly the people along the way offered what they could, including manpower. Harold Godwinson was doing the exact same thing as he headed east. And this, this, were the, this was the days before text messaging. So it goes to show that Harold wasn't too far behind his father in leadership abilities and acumen. Some have it and some don't. And Harold Godwinson, he had it. Godwin and Harold met up and joined their fleets. This was a freaking naval force, man. No joke. And they continued westward from that point, taking it easy on the population as they went. Again, having made their point, they accepted help and supplies when offered, but they largely left the people alone. If all went to plan, they'd be leading these people again someday real soon. So it's best not to make enemies of them. In fact, the Vita Eduardi says that the people of Wessex, for the most part, welcomed Godwin, quote, like children to their long-awaited father, end quote. They did raid Romney, Hythe, and Folkestone, however, which proves that not everybody was out on the beach with smiles and open arms. So by the time the Godwin's forces reached the mouth of the River Thames, it was game time. When Godwin reached London, he was lucky to have made it with a force with which to make a case to the king. There were some pretty choppy waves as he rounded the Kentish coast, but as soon as he turned north, the North Sea turned treacherous within the blink of an eye. Now, I don't want to have a lesson on oceanography here, but it's worth noting a couple things about the North Sea so we get a full idea on what Godwin's forces, naval forces, uh, had to deal with and barely escaped from. One, it's known, the North Sea is, it's known for its horribly dangerous storms. And two, these storms can send series of waves as high as 45 feet, or around 15 meters. And single waves can be almost double that. I'm talking 90 feet, it's insane. So yeah, Godwin was probably wiping his brow and counting backwards from 100 over and over again as what was left of his fleet, which was still a good amount, sailed up the Thames. It certainly could have been far worse. He also had another dilemma. The people he'd encountered, the Vita Edwardi says, encouraged him, <laughs> encouraged him to attack and overthrow King Edward for what he'd done to the Earl and his family, and really the kingdom at large in their eyes. Historian Peter Rex has Godwin quote-unquote recoiling in horror at the suggestion. Godwin made it to London, just as Edward's land soldiers arrived, and there was a moment of hesitation on both sides. Godwin had the numbers on the water, while Edward had the numbers on the land. But of course, Godwin's numbers on the water far outnumbered uh, Edward's water and land numbers, so I guess it wasn't much of a hesitation. He navigated his ships to the south shore across from London. Southwark, I believe, is named. And King Edward's fleet is on the other side. And see, it's interesting here that I haven't come across a number for Godwin's swollen forces yet, but we have Edward's. Edward had 50 ships. That's right, 50 ships led by... Ugh, seriously, Edward? You put Earls Ralph and Otta in charge of the Navy again? They clearly weren't cut out for naval leadership. Man, between you and your father, I don't know what it is with you guys and failed navies. But to give us a number for Godwin's fleet, the Vita Edwardi says that they shifted their boats 
and were quite easily able to encircle Ralph and Ada's 50 ships, meaning Godwin still had a freaking huge force at his disposal. It looked like, for Edward, the gig was up. With Ralph and Otta looking on, Godwin negotiated with the men atop the London Bridge, who accepted Godwin's safe passage into London, something that King Edward had repeatedly denied just a year before. As Godwin approached Ralph and Otta's fleet, they merely cowed to the former, former Earl. What else was there to do? The two Earls simply stood back and allowed Godwin, his son Harold, and a hefty contingent of soldiers pirates, and then followers from Wessex, no doubt, just walk into London and straight to the king where he was at Westminster. Now, Westminster was undergoing a major transformation at the behest of King Edward. Well, King Edward by way of Queen Edith, that is, who got the project going years before. And this is where Godwin and all who were with him approached the king in full armor, weapons at their side. And in the shadow of the king, Godwin shows his real power, the crux of his source of influence. Godwin approached his king and placed his sword at the king's feet as he took a knee. He pleaded his innocence to the king, making himself publicly cower before Edward, a man who, by all counts, at least in the south, had aggressed against him and given him reason to retaliate with force in the first place. Had he struck Edward down in that moment, I doubt many in Wessex would have wept too much. The kingdom would have been in the hands of a pure Saxon man, an earl of the ancestral home of Alfred the Great. It would have been a shock, no doubt, but I personally doubt there would have been many who would have stood up to Godwin in that moment. But as we've heard, the English have an aversion to wars of a civil nature, remember. The, v the Vita Edwardi says, quote, it was abhorrent to almost all of them that they should fight against men of their own race and did not want that this country should be more greatly laid open to foreign nations, end quote. Remember, a civil war in the 11th century meant that the nobility from Earl to Thane would be decimated. Who then would be left to defend from outsiders? Godwin was still, if you can believe it, playing the long game here. He wished a kingdom for his progeny, one not of rubble, but of promise. So again, he lay himself at his king's feet. He begged forgiveness and understanding. But in reality, Edward knew he had not only lost the battle, but he had also lost the war for the hearts and minds of his people. In that one moment. The Earl was a class act, that was for sure. And see, if Edward forgot who was there to see it, it quickly, be, it quickly came back to him when Two of his most loyal earls, Earls Leofric of Mercia and Seward of Northumbria, quickly advised the king to just forgive Godwin. Someone else knew the gig was up. While, Edward, while King Edward and his assembled Witan, of which Godwin and Harold and his men were in attendance there in Westminster, deliberated as to what to do next, a man slipped away with, the two, with two others who shared the same outlook on things. Archbishop Robert of Canterbury, Bishop Ulf of Dorchester, and Bishop William of London, all but ran from the meeting place of those Saxon lords, gathered their households and attendants and valuables, and they bolted. Heading toward East Gate, they made a quick stop to grab a couple people, and by that time, 
The king's men and other Londoners caught word of what these men were trying to do, and they all pounced. These clergymen were forced to fight tooth and nail just to get out of London, barely escaping with their lives, though members of their households wouldn't be so lucky. These holy men rode their horses into the dirt until they made it to Edwolf's Ness in Essex, where they jumped aboard the first barely functioning boat and headed back to Normandy. Archbishop Robert's own monks at Canterbury seemed only too happy to be rid of the Norman as they wrote their own and stay out sentiment in their records of the incident when they said that the archbishop left everything behind, even his pallium, and, quote, all Christendom here in this land, just as God wanted it, end quote. There are rarely such falls from grace as those of Godwin, but there are equally as few rises from such falls such as Godwin's as well. Despite what kind of man he was, despite his insistence in perpetuating a system that oppresses others regardless of race or gender, and despite his sins along the way, one simply cannot sit back and not marvel at the man that was Godwin. His name echoes across time far less than I personally think it should. I'm not saying he's some reverential figure, but if we remember people such as Cleopatra or Cicero or Harold Hardrada, then how on earth can we forget about Godwin so easily? Honestly, it's enough to make your head spin if you're not careful. In one year's time, a man went from the highest echelons of power to the bottom within a couple weeks, only to be exiled, raise two massive fleets, join them up, and sail straight to his former king, and play the king out to be the merciful one in order, in, in order all but to seal the deal on whether he gets back into the kingdom or not. George R.R. R. Martin got really close, but I just don't think a person can quite meet the political acumen as a man like Godwin. He is truly second to none. Now from here, Edward has some serious decisions to make. Looking back, immediately after expelling the Godwins from his kingdom, he shuffled around the earldoms. Then, between June and September of 1052, all of that was thrown into question as the Godwins made moves to re-enter the kingdom. And now, it's the beginning of October and it was time to restore Godwin and his kids back to their original estates and earldoms. This was not a good look for King Edward, that was for sure. And what's more, any chance of annulling his marriage with Godwin's daughter Edith and starting over with a new bride again, possibly Count Eustace's daughter, was completely out the window too, as Edward was forced to return Edith to all of her titles, lands, wealth, influence, and her bedchamber that she shared with Edward. So awkward, right? If I could be a fly on the wall of that conversation. So by October of 1052, the massive upheaval orchestrated by Edward, or dare I say, Robert of Jumiege, was at an end, and the Kingdom of England could rest easy, for a while at least. Godwin received all of his lands back, though Otta retained Swain Godwinson's lands, and thus the new earldom of Gloucestershire and Westershire. Now, Earl Ralph, the king's nephew, had an interesting situation. Edward didn't really know where to put him. Swain Godwinson was still on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, but with Godwin's overwhelming victory over Edward, 
the king wasn't really in a place to push Swain out so much anymore. So Earl Ralph, well, he remained Earl, but not exactly in charge of anything for the moment. That is, until word from the Holy Land arrived within a month or so about Swain's progress. See, we don't know what happened exactly except that Swain G.D. Godwinson was involved, a man who decided to go full diva and cross the continent with no shoes as penitence. A man who once sided with an enemy of the state because his weekend happened to be free. A man who once stole a nun for a whole freaking year. A man who is not only kicked out of his own kingdom twice, but also out of a kingdom that he didn't even belong to when he was fighting on that kingdom's side. Yeah, Swain Godwinson, having reached Constantinople on his return trip, died. So, we don't know how it happened. But it probably involved some almost famous scene where he's barefoot and wasted, having climbed to the top of a local church spire, threw his hands out in both directions, and screamed, I am a golden god, before diving into a swimming pool in front of equally inebriated onlookers. Only the swimming tool pool was a mirage or something. I don't know. It probably didn't happen that way, but you can't sit there and tell me it isn't in total Swain fashion. In reality, he probably died of some unknown illness, like so many before him, like Duke William's dad and, and Earl Ralph's dad, oddly both, in 1035 on pilgrimage. Or it could have been if the rumors of him going completely barefoot were true, a simple infection that would have been easily treated with modern-day antibiotics or antifungals. There's just no knowing what killed Swain Godwinson. But I think it is safe to say that he most likely had something to do with his early and untimely death. But there is a direct beneficiary to Godwin's sad news of his firstborn's, his heir's, demise. Earl Ralph? became an earl with land once again. Earl Ralph took Swain's earldom of Herefordshire indefinitely this time, and Ada again got to keep his lands too. Along with Harold Godwinson receiving East Anglia again, ousting Earl Leofrich's son Elfgar from the post, the rest of Godwin's children were given some extras for their trouble, including Leofwina, who received lands around the kingdom, with which to begin building his own legacy. Keep an eye on him for a little while. So the Christmas of 1052 must have been one for the ages for the House of Godwin. The Vita Edwardi says, quote, There was deep joy both at court and in the whole country, end quote. But again, this work was published decades later and most likely sponsored by Queen Edith herself, and so laced with positive outlooks on both Edward and Godwin, which must have been a monumental challenge at times in the narrative, no doubt. However, the weather over England was more likely mirroring how mirroring how Edward felt as a debilitating winter storm ravaged from northern Wessex to Northumbria, killing many livestock as well as people. But as for recent events, imagine all of what happened happening to a lesser man. Leofrich of Mercia, Seward of Northumbria, these were powerful figures in Anglo-Saxon England, no question. But they were, in hindsight, no Godwin. In fact, there would be no Godwin for quite some time in English history, arguably ever, but we do have a couple on the distant horizon of the podcast who may challenge his stature. 
Godwin was a phenomenon, to be sure. His father was a pirate who gutted his king's navy and joined the enemy. He defied his first king and joined the son, who was in open rebellion, all while fighting against Danish invaders with sights on the crown itself. He then joined up with the Danish victor and somehow survived a violent purge of which he was completely eligible to have been killed in. He rose in prestige to marry his second king's daughter. He forced, he, excuse me, he forges an alliance with the queen and then breaks that alliance by violently murdering her son. He buys a couple expensive yachts to buy off his next two kings and then pushes his latest king around to the point of exile, only to return and win back everything he and his family lost and then some, while making that king out to be the saint he would eventually become. I'm sorry, but there's no one quite like Godwin. And by late winter of 1053, King Edward apparently was ready to move on, tail between his legs and all, because he invited Godwin and his entire family to Easter festivities. We've talked about how Anglo-Saxon parties were more than just a simple weekend barbecue or a night out with the fellas. These were events. These were straight-up Burning Man parties lasting a week or longer, full of every indulgence and excess one could make room for within the confines of Christian doctrine, which amounted to food and drink, and the side hustle behind the watchful eyes of the clergy, of course. Godwin attended, as was his duty, and by the day after Easter Sunday, Godwin might have been able to count on one hand how many hours over the last week he wasn't either drunk or full. And he was in his 60s. I mean, his sons could hold their own. His new heir and second-born Harold was only nearing 30 years old at this point. But Godwin had lived a long, hard life. He just couldn't hang on anymore. And no one can really blame him. I mean... Take a moment and reflect on everything he'd seen. The Danish conquest of England, the Anglo-Saxon purge, the brilliant Canute the Great, the 1030s succession crises, the return of the House of Wessex, the incomparable Harold Hardrada returning from the east only to attack his nephew-in-law in Denmark for the throne, his daughter marrying the King of England, his own exile and return. Was there no end to Godwin's story? Well, of course there is. Everything has an end. He was old enough and had seen enough to be well aware of that fact of life. So that Monday, at another party, Godwin just gave out. He had pressed his entire being into boosting his kids' chances at maintaining a higher level of influence than he had, even overcoming that recent exile. He just couldn't do it any longer. This moment was immortalized in a William Blake painting in the 19th century. That is, the English people still remembered this moment a full 800 years later. Godwin himself is an immortal figure, for better or for worse. Conviction, determination, perseverance, these are admirable qualities in a person, regardless of how they're used for the betterment of those around them, or the lack thereof. And Godwin had all of these qualities. He embodied these qualities. Godwin had truly become the response to the immovable object. Godwin was the 11th century's unstoppable force in England. Until he wasn't. 
But let it be known that the only thing to have stopped Godwin was something far beyond Godwin or any human's power. In fact, there is a little story found in the works of William of Malmesbury about what happened next and why. See, as Godwin was participating in the feasting and revelry, the topic of his loyalty came up, probably as a joke, but Godwin took the moment to air out some of that good old-fashioned swag, that confidence that saw him rise from the son of a pirate to kingmaker. He's reported as saying, quote, May God not permit me to swallow if I have done anything to endanger Alfred or to hurt you. End quote. You being King Edward, of course. Well, Godwin took a bite of food, attempted to swallow, and he choked to death. Now, who knows if that's actually the case, as the account comes long after the Earl's death. Another story seems much more down-to-earth. It just says that Godwin most likely had a stroke. I mean, he was battle-hardened politician and soldier, and he was 60. Either way, on April 15th, 1053, Godwin's heart stopped beating, his blood stopped pumping, his lungs ceased its cycle of inhalation and exhalation, and as we know today with modern brain science, within minutes of this happening, Godwin's brain stopped firing the very same electrical impulses which had driven him into history. Hope you enjoyed today's episode about England's unstoppable force in the 11th century. Please continue to subscribe and share the podcast on your favorite podcasting service or app. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can contact the show with questions, concerns, topics, suggestions, and even corrections, as yes, I'm humble enough to know that there will be unintentional errors along the way. You can reach me at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. Also, I encourage you to become a Patreon supporter. For just a couple bucks per month, you will receive perks such as bonus episodes and shoutouts on the show, to name a couple. My goal for this podcast is to be 100% ad-free and self-sustaining by the end of this year, and I appreciate everyone who's helping to make this possible. Thank you. On the next episode, we shift gears away from England, because something's building in the South and Southeast that, um, and I say this without a single iota of hyperbole, will not only ripple across the next several centuries, but something is still rippling today. You know you can tell a lot about a person by looking at how they choose to spend their time, and I want to thank you for spending your time learning about our shared history here on Fortune's Real Podcast.